0: I also think it's really important for people to feel like they're actually contributing to something and that they see there's room for them to grow and evolve. So it's really up to our industry to provide those kinds of opportunities.
1: Stephanie Fullerton has worked as a commercial escrow officer and at a title production software vendor. This mix of industry experience over the course of more than a decade revealed the gaps between those working in the industry, those regulating it, and those providing technology solutions. In response, she eventually founded Streamline Consulting to help title companies bridge these gaps, becoming more efficient and reaching their business goals. In my conversation with Stephanie, we discuss how title companies can evaluate solutions for better data management, preventing cyber attacks, training teams to use the software in a way that suits their operations, and driving more awareness of the industry. I'm Amanda Farrell, and this is Title Talks. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me today and to share some of your insight with our podcast audience. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just first start off by getting into a little bit about your background and what led you to establish your consulting firm. Oh yes. (laughs) It's a fun story.
0: (laughs) So, um, I do come from the industry. I was a commercial escrow officer for almost nine years and it was primarily on the commercial side of the business. I reached a point where the last company that I was with, they actually asked us to migrate over into the residential setting. And it was at the time when the big refi boom was happening. And to be candid, uh, It was not my cup of tea, (laughs) Uh, completely different from commercial. And I really didn't care too much for what I was seeing. So I decided to kind of dip out of that component of our industry and try something new. And I went to work for one of the software vendors. And when I did it, I, I actually I loved it. Um, I started off at the very bottom because, of course, I'm not myself a, like a technical person. I wasn't an IT person by trade or by nature, but I understood software uh, very well, and that seemed to be where I thrived. And so, when I went to work for the vendor, um, I was very transparent and said, "Listen, I'll you know I'll have to work my way up, but I, I've been the go-to person at certain places that I've worked uh, when it comes to the software. i had kind of Established that kind of credibility, and I think I can, you know, be a benefit to the company. And so, sure enough, they took took a gamble on me, and I worked for them for about four years. Uh, I started off, as I mentioned, in support. I ended up in training. I did help a little bit with some implementation, some tech writing, and I mean, I really got to see a lot of the other side of things. So, you know, up to that point, obviously, I was an end user and and seeing what that looked like and now here I was on the technical side of things and it became really glaringly obvious that there was somehow kind of a breakdown between the two and what I what I came to acknowledge is in our industry there there were there used to be really two kind of primary resources when it came to technology and or just the industry knowledge. It was your underwriters and the governing entities such as Alta, Respa, those, those kinds of things. And then it was the software vendors. But there was really no one in between. And the problem with that was the software vendors are great about knowing their platforms and understanding the functionality of their platforms But they weren't so great about understanding the industry itself. And when it came to the other side, right, the underwriters and the governing entities definitely understand the industry, but not so much the platform. So when I ended up leaving that software company, I took a pause and I thought, you know, what what could I do to be a benefit and draw upon my skill set and knowledge without getting sucked back into doing closings again and title. And so I I started reaching out to companies and just kind of asking if you were to need help, you know, what would that look like? And one thing led to another. And before we knew it, you know, here I was in a consulting role and doing things simple. It started off in the beginning. I was helping type policies. I was helping doing some trainings, you know, configuring some documents, then it was helping up open branches for new companies and things like that. So it really it really became, in my mind, a, a, a need. It was out of necessity that Streamline was born to help bridge that gap between the industry and the technology. I felt like title companies and escrow companies needed an advocate to kind of help guide them through that process and evolve in their own structures and in their own organizations, not only technologically, but also with the industry itself and keeping up to date with that.
1: Data as an asset is arguably one of the most valuable assets that businesses have today, including title companies. Managing that data can be really difficult. So what are some of the options that are available to title companies today? I hear a lot about cloud computing. And then of course there's the standard, you know, maintaining your own servers. But is there another option? Um, and can you kind of go through what each of those options are and how people can evaluate the best way to manage their data? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we see we see a lot of variations.
0: Uh, we actually do still, believe it or not, see a lot of people with physical servers. Um, now, usually there's more of a, a hybrid situation where they may have a physical server on site or being hosted, you know, at a, at a data center. And then they also have something like a cloud backup or, or um, some type of cloud environment in, involved in some capacity. But physical servers obviously is one, um, cloud servers being another. And this can be handled in a multitude of ways as well. You you can have a cloud server that's managed by someone in-house. You can you know have a cloud solution that is managed completely by a, a third-party company, um, or it can be a combination of all of the above. And then we also have the situation where some people opt to maintain IT in house, whether it's physical servers or cloud servers. Um, and then other companies really prefer just to kind of outsource that and go to a third party altogether. And then again, we have the hybrid situations where it's a combination of both. So we've kind of seen that mixture all the way around with various clients. Of course, it, a lot of it depends on the size. And always, you're you're having to consider what are the end goals, right? Uh, because if you're a larger company, you you would probably want to have a combined effort, so that if God forbid, you know, internally something were to maybe maybe not be as scalable as you need, you've got that resource externally. And then if you're a smaller company, maybe you don't want to have any internal resources. Maybe it's just easier for you to outsource all of your stuff. In fact, for us, for a while, we kind of had both, but now we we rely solely on an outsourced third party. And our stuff, it happens to be all in the cloud, although we've recently, due to events in our industry, have uh, been evaluating things very strongly, not only for ourselves, but with our clients for that very reason.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm sure you're referencing the CloudStar ransomware attack. Maybe tell us a little bit more about what the risks and benefits are of using cloud computing and what sort of evaluations to sort of make sure that you're managing all of those potential risks.
0: Yeah, this is, I'll tell you, it was definitely um, a learning opportunity. Uh, one that certainly I don't think anyone was really fully prepared for. So we We were able to obviously identify risks you're you're no matter what you're going to be vulnerable to hacking, so you can have that whether you have a physical server in-house or whether you have something you know externally you're being cloud hosted there's there's always that vulnerability that's just the age that we live in now. But other risks then come into play when you're talking about, especially with like a physical server. Are there outages, right? Um, is there, you know? I mean, it can be anything. We had we had one client that was actually. Uh, their building was struck by lightning, it crashed their server, their whole building was on fire, like it was devastating. Um, Now, fortunately, they were one of those hybrid situations where they were immediately able to get back up and running because they also had a cloud solution that was able to get them, um, you know, back up within, I feel like they said it was really remarkable timing, like within 24 hours or something like that. So... Risks of clouds of cloud hosting is vulnerability and then outages beyond your control. You just don't have that kind of control. Benefits, though, are things like avoiding physical damage, right? So due to a flood or a fire or a lightning strike in this case if it's a managed solution, not having to maintain it yourself, right? Because there's, there's always that element. Anytime you involve equipment, there's a maintenance situation. That's, that's eventually going to occur. You're either going to have to upgrade equipment. You're going to have to um, maybe buy new equipment. That's, you know, that's always a concern. And then depending on the company who is hosting your equipment, there, there may be added security or not. So, it's kind of a, you know, you really have to look at, again, what are the end goals? What are, what are you shooting for? Because in most cases, when people turn their data over to a, a cloud environment or a hosting company that they're entrusting with their data, they're assuming blindly that everything is going to be taken care of. And we just can't do that anymore. We, we have to really be looking at all aspects of of the situation and all pieces of the puzzle so we actually now are recommending multiple backups for clients we're recommending multiple solutions some of our clients this scared them so bad that they want to go back to servers and we're saying well let's just pause for a minute because you're you're still opening yourself up to additional risks and things like that it's still going to have to be managed it's still going to have to be secured but there's nothing wrong with having multiple solutions in place, even if that does mean a physical component. So, for example, if let's say you did have, you know, your primary server is, is hosted by a third party, you could have redundancy that's also in a cloud environment that maybe is a different company and or different hosting solution. And then you could even have a third, which would be a physical component such as, you know, removable drives or something of that nature. So we're really, really taking a look at what are the best options for something of this nature and just in general for a disaster recovery plan.
1: Yeah, I think redundancy is definitely a really important point when it comes to evaluating these third-party data solution providers or it support do you have any other advice that you would give to title professionals when they are considering outsourcing some of these services
0: yeah first and foremost vet vet this company vet them well, um, make sure you even if you don't know the questions to ask, find someone who does know the questions to ask, because there again, there are a lot of components. And, and I'm not I.T. I'm not even pretending to be I.T., which is why I hire an I.T. company to make sure that we're safe, to make sure that, you know, we're operating properly. So vetting the IT support provider is is critical. Don't just go based on someone's word. Do the research. And again, if you don't know what that in, entails, then get help with that. And one of the resources I think you could look to would be your underwriters, right? They have baseline recommendations that you can kind of start to use as, as a guideline. Some things to be looking into are find out what types of security they use themselves, Find out what types of security they're going to use to protect you. And are you on a shared network? Are you sharing with other companies? Or are you an isolated incident where you're on a server by yourself? These are things that you definitely want to to look into. You want to ascertain if they're familiar with and proficient in supporting the levels of security needed because there are different levels of security needed. You want to determine what levels of liability they're willing to incur. Like, do they have insurance? Are you know, what are the insurances and assurances that they're going to be able to give you for protecting your data? And then at the end of the day, you just have to weigh out the costs associated and make a determination as to what's going to be the best solution for you. The other thing is I never, ever stick with just one. I always, if you're going to be evaluating companies, I usually look at at least three to five. Uh, I also always ask for recommendations and referrals, get as many referral sources or references that you possibly can and call them all and find out what is their day-to-day experience. Like, what is their annual experience? Like what, you know, what kinds of, what kinds of questions did they ask about security? There's nothing wrong with being transparent and saying, gosh, I just am curious, you know what did you ask for when you went to use them? Um, you know what was important to you? Maybe there's some things that you know that I don't know and I, I one thing through this through this event that I found that I was most impressed with in our in our industry is the collaborative efforts of helping one another. I will tell you we had a lot of clients. That really just were immediately stand up, whatever they could do to help the other clients. They didn't know these clients, they just were ready and willing to help each other. And there were a lot of calls between multiple clients, you know, just information gathering, sharing information. And there's no reason that you can't do that when you're looking for a new. Service provider it doesn't matter what they're in if it's if it's for security if it's for uh, hosting it doesn't really matter there is no reason you can't be transparent and ask these other companies what did you do what was important for you
1: Yeah so I did want to ask a little bit about you know maybe your personal opinion on it, it sounds like you have to prepare yourself a lot when you even just start. You know, you have to do research in order to know which questions to ask. So in your personal opinion, do you think title companies today would benefit from having an in-house IT person to rely on? Or do you think that outsourcing this kind of stuff makes sense still? Boy, you know, that's such a it,
0: it just it truly does depend on the client and their needs, because on the one hand, depending on the structure and the setup of of the environment it can be very beneficial to have someone in house on the other hand it's not always necessary it goes back to you know what really what are the end goals but i do think this whether you have someone in house or whether you you outsource you need to make sure that you at least have another resource that you can run things by i don't i just don't ever like to put all my eggs in one basket i just don't I myself, I like to have multiple resources. And then at the end of the day, I have the information that I need to make a final decision. Now, typically, if you do have someone in-house, especially the larger companies where they've got like a CIO, a CTO, and then they have teams of you know support people underneath them, in that case, you would hope that you've hired <laughs> the guidance and the expertise that you need. You would. But there's still nothing wrong with having someone else To run stuff by, and I would be surprised if they themselves didn't have that for their for their own decision making purposes. You know, the CTO, the CIO. I mean, they do they do have resources that that go beyond just their immediate surroundings. So yeah, it's one of those things that it just it really depends on the the client itself, the company itself, what the end goals are, what kind of resources and scalability they have.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, about how even IT experts have a community in which they use each other as sounding boards to find solutions. I know in IT, a lot of them have online communities, message boards, where they work through problems together. So I know in the title industry, there is uh, an Ulta message board that maybe people can use to just ask general questions about how other companies sort of solve these problems when it comes to IT or data management or whatever it might be and then of course maybe even turning to linkedin and the groups that you're a part of too maybe that's a good place to start as well just figuring out what questions to ask what other sort of processes people who've gone through it have followed so maybe that's that's some place to start as well absolutely So cybersecurity is only one part of the problem facing data management, obviously. There's also natural disasters to think about. You mentioned someone's server being struck by lightning. Uh, And I know that a lot of people in, in the industry still rely on paper documentation. Flooding is a huge issue in a lot of states in the United States. It's getting worse in some areas. So what does a holistic approach to safeguarding data look like? Well, that's one of the things that we ourselves are working through with
0: clients right now. Um, Redundancy is key. I, you know, I cannot stress that enough. You've, you've got to have redundancy in place, whether it's physical or um, in a virtual setting, redundancy is key. Now, No matter what, you should always have redundancy in a virtual setting. And yet there is still somewhat of a need, at least in part, for physical documentation in certain certain aspects. So making sure you have proper backups, whether that's in the cloud or physical or both. Okay, so backups of your server, backups of your data. And again, it could be a mixed solution. And then some things that we're recommending after, after seeing these kinds of events are doing things such as exports from databases. So, for example, you know, we, we support four, four of the major p- uh, production platforms and there are ways to export data so that not only would you have the entire database intact, if, God forbid, all of your fail safes, you know, failed, um, you would still have these exports where if you had to start over with a seed database you would have some data and documentation to be able to import or upload. You'd have kind of snapshots, if you will, which is why we're recommending like a, a completely third solution, really, not just the instance of your primary server and a backup server, but like a third solution. And in some cases, you know, some people have actually stated, well, we want some of these exports to be documented on paper. Not a bad idea, especially things like when it comes to workflows or things that can easily be transferred into some type of written or printed documentation fairly easily. We're not talking manuals and manuals of, of information here. The other thing is documents. One of the things that we found people scrambling around for were just their basic documents. So even having just one or two files of, you know, these are our standard refi documents, these are our standard purchase sale loan documents, something of that nature. And again, I'm not advocating a lot of paper. At the same time, if we're going to be looking at things as you mentioned, holistically, we kind of need to take some of these things into consideration. So having those somewhere in a fireproof and or waterproof safe is not a bad idea for a backup situation. Running reports is also something that I think is, is really critical. And I don't Feel like we see that enough. Uh, you know, people get so caught up in the day to day happenings, and especially over the last couple of years where everyone is just inundated with work, that we're really not always taking the time to run reports on data. And I think that can actually help quite a bit just having again these kind of snapshots to see where things are at least you'd have things like file numbers and maybe buyers names sellers names something of that nature nothing PI related of course would we ever recommend that you save and store um, but you know things that can give us just the general pieces of information would be very helpful the other thing that we found very interesting and again i was just so pleasantly surprised was the collaboration with vendors that use or compile data for files. and it's not that they retain them for long periods of time. But there was enough data in some instances with some of the vendors that we work with that they were able to help provide solutions for recreating a lot of the data that needed to be recreated uh, from the incident. So I think that was that's really key is identifying partners, that not only are going to help you in the moment, right, but that may be able to be a long-term solution if, God forbid, something ever did happen, that they may be able to help in some capacity recreate, you know, pieces of information that may be critical to the organization and and just being able to move forward.
1: That's great to hear about the collaboration and all the help that people were able to get from other vendors and Maybe even from some places that they didn't necessarily anticipate. I actually heard from uh, someone in our company who were partnered with NextDeal, and yeah. they, yeah, and they they do store a lot of documents as part of their workflow, and that tool is used for a totally different purpose. But I was speaking to Rob, and he mentioned that a few CloudStar clients were able to reach out to him, and they were able to recover some of their data because of the fact that they stored documents for them. So that's, it's great to hear how so many people came together and were able to help out where yes. maybe they were, that's not even what their, you know, service level agreement is, or that's not their, their main function, but they still saw an opportunity to help and they stepped in and, and did that. So that's really great to hear it's funny because <laughs> next deal was one of the first ones that we thought
0: of as well to help with that and we recommended to our clients let's reach out um for those that were
1: it was it was very helpful can you talk a little bit about the steps of what happens during a recovery and is there a difference between how you go about recovery from a disaster and crisis management? between natural disaster and a cyber attack? What, what does that look like? So, you know, with a natural disaster,
0: in most cases, you still have some sort of backup and redundancy that you can, you can grab, right? Whereas with a, something like this, a cyber attack, depending on the hosting and our backup solutions that are in place and how they're set up, you may or may not have access to any of that data at all. And that can vary drastically depending on a number of variables, such as, you know, are government officials involved and to what degree was the attack? I mean, there's a lot of different components that may prevent you from being able to get data or you just may not have access to it. it, may just be gone, which unfortunately was the case with many of our clients through this incident. And so what that has looked like is it's been very different for each client actually, because in some cases, again, depending on how they structured their arrangement with, um, with their hosting provider, they were able to have backups because they had their own, they maintained their own backups as well. And so in some cases, some clients were able to go back, even though. It wasn't ideal, but like one client we have, you know, they had to start with February, but thank God they had February, you know, because then we're only looking at a few months. Another client that we had actually was only a month behind in a local backup. So theoretically, they were missing one month of, you know, having to recreate data. And when I say missing, there's always still something somewhere, right? You've got emails, you've got paper files in some cases like there's always a trail somewhere you've got next deal you've got you know close simple alana whatever the case may be there's there's a trail somewhere so if you're working with these other integration pieces which we highly recommend but for other clients it was not so easy and it has not been such a fun experience we not thought that any of it was fun but we have had to basically recreate things from anything from old tickets that we ourselves kept, where, for example, um, some of our clients will turn in tickets and say, "Hey, you know we need this workflow built out." Well, we had a lot of that information in our tickets, and so we were able to go back through tickets, go back through emails. We ourselves keep documentation um, for clients, and so we were able to to rely on some of that. But that's the other thing when I mentioned earlier about you know exporting some of this data, that would have been so helpful for us it, if once a month we had exported the workflows and just had them because, again, that would have been so helpful to say, well, here's everything we had up until last month, you know, at least in a workflow processing piece. Or here's all the documents that we have for you and the latest, greatest changes that were made, things of that nature. So in in recreating these files we've we've really learned to pay attention to what is kept and maintained and again I'm I'm not necessarily saying anything from npi perspective but from an organizational perspective and an operational perspective there are key things that you can be mindful of in
1: maintaining and keeping record of so it sounds like it's important for title companies now to consider getting those redundancies in place and so would you say that there's any sort of training that team members, that title companies need to be doing now in order to provide the best data management and also keep up with the, the huge amount of title order volume that they're seeing right now?
0: Yeah, I think um, one is internally really kind of rethinking where you're at today because you have to. I mean, there's just no way around it. There, there are new. There's just new rules that we have to 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 play by. Unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it. Tech, because of technology, so you know, I think one is look look to your team and say, how are we keeping up with this stuff? Are we keeping up with this? Because a lot of people don't even know if they are. You know, you, you get like I said, so focused on the day to day, no one really pauses to look at at the big picture. So. I think communicating internally and looking to your team members and saying, where are we? Like with the different divisions and departments, how, how are we maintaining data? Are we maintaining data? I also think it's really critical to make sure that everyone understands the significance and usage of things like emails and encrypted messages and things of that nature, especially from a best practices for security, right? Because there are so many tools out there right now that frankly, it's hard to tell if someone is, you know, fishing, if it's a legitimate thing, because they have logos, they have actual wire instructions, they have phone numbers, they have even pictures. So, you know, it's very important, I think, to be educated uh, internally and make sure that everyone understands the significance of using whatever tools are, are available to you to protect and safeguard that data. Making sure that everyone knows the kinds of information that they should be sending out versus not sending out is also very critical. I mean, we've you know been talking for years about MPI and, and, um, keeping things confidential and private, but do people really understand what that means? Making sure everyone understands the phishing scams and, and what those kinds of emails look like and what the protocol is if they do receive one, because a lot of, a lot of times end users just think, oh, I have this and I'm just going to delete it. Well, usually IT wants to be notified. There are things that they can do to try to, you know, trace the, the resources and things of that nature. So you want to make sure that you have in place some kind of protocol for when these kinds of things happen. And then I always recommend periodic reviews and discussions taking place, not only as reminders for staff, but also, again, to evaluate where are we today? How how are we handling, um, say, for example, our document inventory repository? Does everybody know what documents we even have and use in case, God forbid, we should lose them? Where is that being stored? What about our workflows? You know, do we have proper documentation for our workflows And then, of course, your consumer information, right? How are we protecting and and safeguarding that? So I I think there's just it needs to be more communication and more training internally and educating everyone as to not only how you operate and what your protocols are, but also what you should and could be doing to protect the information of others.
1: So your team, your, your consulting firm also helps train staff. On title production software, so can you go a little bit more into what that looks like, and do you see any areas where companies are underutilizing their software tools? Oh my gosh, every day,
0: <laughs> every day, um, yeah. So we do train, and and we train on the production platforms, and we we take more of um, a holistic approach. So we don't just train on the functionality of the software, but we really kind of go granular in most cases and say, this is how your company is going to use that software. So to, to use, we'll just say, you know, next deal, for example, I mean, every title company is, can use it, but some people might use it differently than others and so really understanding what is our goal and how are we going to leverage this new tool that we have what are we going to do to shine by using this tool and so when we do our trainings we try to really gear it toward what is specific to that specific client and and when it relates to security of course again it's how are we going to be sending information securely How are we making sure, because a lot of these platforms, you can send documents, but are you making sure they're encrypted or are you making sure they're PDFs and not Word documents that someone, you know, can, can alter? So there's things like that, that we, you know, take into consideration. And then most people really don't even think about that. Most of the platforms have some type of um, feature for is banning unauthorized transactions or parties, Some people used to call it the block list, right? So you should not do business with this buyer. You should not do business with this attorney. You should not do business with this property, for example, because there's liens against it or something like that. Most of the platforms have something built in and most people aren't even aware of it. So there are things like that, a lot of features that people just aren't aware of that are built into the platforms that not only can make your job easier, but they can also prevent long-term problems such as claims coming in. You know, when we're doing the trainings, we try to make sure that we focus on, again, what's applicable to your company, and then, of course, maximizing the functionality within the platform.
1: And I'm sure when a company updates their software, they probably have a lot of high expectations about it solving a lot of their their problems. But sometimes those problems might be organizational. They might be a lack of having the right best practices in place or just overhauling of their internal processes. So the results can sometimes fall flat. Do you ever see that kind of thing happen? And then what are some tips that you give to clients to ensure their business tools align with their needs and expectations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> it's a loaded one, too, because,
0: you know, it, it's a catch-22. You you oftentimes need an upgrade in order to, as you said, fix things or to take advantage of the latest technology pieces. But at the same time, there's it's inevitable. It doesn't matter if it's Microsoft or if it's XYZ company. You're going to have a situation where, you know, there's going to be what we call bugs or you know, issues that arise. So the first thing is we always recommend that whenever possible clients remain at least one or two versions behind on upgrades, because the probability of new issues is decreased if they kind of vet it through, if you will, right? Because usually other companies have kind of gone through and beta and worked out as many kinks as possible. And the effects of this can vary drastically based on the client setup. So for example, if you have client A that's using a whole bunch of integrations and client B who's using two integrations and the upgrade comes out they may be they may may or may not be affected the, in the same ways, the person who's got the integrations, maybe there's some bugs in the in the production platform that are going to cause issues with the integrations. But client B over here, they're never going to know it because they're not using those integrations. So um, we always recommend that it, you know they wait at least one or two versions behind. And then for us, we usually offer two options. We say, okay, clients, um, we we are they're going to go through this with you we can go through the whitelist papers and or you know the list of identified issues with you and see which ones are going to pertain to you or do our best to try to see which ones will pertain to them or we can go through this list for you first and then advise you as to which ones we think will affect you and then make recommendations for which ones that they should be focused on so that's that's one component. And then the other thing is that I wish I saw more of, seems like usually it's more of the larger companies that take this approach. And I really wish smaller ones would as well. But we always advise whenever possible that clients install upgrades on like a test environment or a training environment first. So that way, you know, whatever you can find, you're not in live production database. So we recommend that they review the release notes, identify the known issues, and then test 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 in like a test environment. You know, that way they can identify items that maybe are, you know, are deal breakers for them and they haven't interrupted their production system. We also typically suggest that when they're trying to identify these like when in rollout comes out and we say, you know, you're going through the features, we ask them to try and identify people internally, such as like the subject matter experts of any division, to go through that process with them because they're gonna have information as to what would impact their workflows and their internal policies and procedures. They're gonna know, well, if we implement this feature, that means that Susie Q is gonna have five other steps that she didn't used to have before. Or what that means is it's gonna eliminate completely this entire position that we have because we now have this integration that's gonna take care of this piece for us. So it's really important to have the involvement of staff who are doing the day-to-day production events and operations to make them aware so that they can help build into new policies and procedures. And then lastly, of course, once you're ready and you've decided to go forward, we recommend that they educate the staff on the item so that everyone's aware because all too often we see these wonderful upgrades and then we go on site with these clients or we connect with them and half of the staff is like, oh gosh, we didn't even know that was available. And this whole time I've been typing you know, 17 other pages or you know whatever the case may be when there was a shortcut this whole time that they just never knew about because it wasn't announced or it wasn't highly um, focused on in the organization. So education is is critical in these upgrades and rollout. Um, and in many cases, we actually do webinars and or shadow sessions to show these features to point them out so that people actually see them. So those are our primary recommendations when we talk about upgrades.
1: Yeah, that sounds really great and thorough. And I know even from our our side of things as vendors providing title support solutions, we've definitely heard some feedback about issues with integrations or some of our clients not wanting to update because they're afraid of losing certain features that they currently have or them not functioning quite right and fixing those bugs yeah. can be a bit of a, an issue for some of them. <laughs> yeah, definitely and sometimes you don't have a choice i mean you know that that happens too
0: but when when you can those would be the precautionary steps we would would recommend
1: i was wondering what your thoughts are on the workforce shortage that we're facing in the title industry and do you have any tips on when title companies should use temporary staffing or outsourcing title support services like with prop logics what are your thoughts on that so our temporary staff augmentation
0: solution is actually called the A-team. And the A-team was devised for any time and any situation, not just based on things going on now. So, My recommendations really would be the same no matter what, whether it's now or when business is usual. If you're short-staffed and you need help, you should utilize the resources available to you. And oftentimes that does mean reaching out to your vendors. Sometimes that may mean your underwriters. Sometimes that may mean your partners, like your integration partners, such as you guys, Um, because you never know who might have something that can help. So always reach out is my first thing for specifically the staff augmentation you know what we saw is especially in our industry it's just it's not something that people go to school for right <laughs> so trying to find people who understand what we do and know how to be able to jump in and do it it can it can be challenging so times to utilize this is when someone's out on a holiday or maternity leave or you know they're on their honeymoon um, if you have an influx of orders and you don't want to staff up just to turn right around and have to lay people off there's a heavy month end where your volume's high and you do you know you want to be able to sustain your current staff right we don't want to burn everybody out to to the point that they they just can't they can't function there's projects that you get behind on because other things take precedence such as policies is a, is a really big one and then just temporary projects in general you know sometimes you have, a building project that may come in, and again, it's one of those situations where you don't want to have to bulk up on staff only to have to turn around and lay them off next year. So, I think those are examples that carry through certainly any time, whether we're in the middle of you know what we're going through now or just in general. I think you just need to to be aware that you have resources, number one, and reach out to them and ask them if you're feeling that kind of pressure for any one of those
1: reasons. Looking back on your time as an escrow officer, what training methods worked best for you in your early days? Um, You know, we we talk a lot about recruiting, but then the other side of that coin is the training. So, you know, like you said, there's no school really to train title professionals. So what are some tips that you would give to people in the industry who feel overwhelmed, who are dealing with the day-to-day, but still need to train people Mm -hmm. and need... Good, good methods for making those um, educational moments last and um, easy for new people to act on.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, well, I myself have—I've always been a hands-on person, so for me, actual experience has been my best teacher. You know, that said, I—I I had amazing mentors who could see that I genuinely sought to learn and understand as much as possible in order to do the best job I could do and to be a valuable asset. So. They really made sure to involve me in things like conference calls, client meetings, shadowing sessions, even closings. And they always made themselves available for me to ask questions and run things by them. So, again, just a strong support system is really helpful. There was certainly a lot of learning by trial by fire (laughs) as well, which does definitely teach you a lot. But when I made mistakes, I quickly learned from them and how to avoid them going forward. So for me, practical experience was the best teacher, but I do think that we can, we can focus on things a little differently. We need to focus on forward thinking technology as things advance. And I also think we need to make ourselves more known. So Social media is one outlet to capture attention of people, but there are still things like job fairs and colleges and internships and things like that, career building assistance. So in fact, I can tell you, we ourselves, uh, we have posted at several colleges for multiple positions in our company, because no matter what, people do still find an interest in being a part of something. And in many cases, they, they just aren't sure what that should be or what that could even look like. So I think our industry needs to be more open to flexible working conditions and educating people that were out there, right? And and also, you know, we're kind of old school in some cases, and not every position needs to be in-house. It can there, you know, it can be handled remotely, which we're starting to see more and more, and we've seen that over the last couple of years. I also think we need to consider how our offices are structured and how we can collaborate more internally. So one of the things that we always recommend to our clients is that they do cross training. So regardless of the position being filled, it doesn't matter if you're the receptionist or frankly, you're this the CTO. It, in my opinion, you should sit in every seat and see how this thing functions, right? You need to see what is the left hand doing and the right hand doing? How are we all connected? Everyone should have an idea of what goes on in an organization. And you should see how one department affects another, especially when it comes to title and escrow. And for so long, I feel that there was almost a division between the two, right? Title had their opinions and escrow had their opinions. And and in many cases, they, they almost became adversarial, whereas you can't do one without the other we're a team. And not only are we a team, when someone closes on their home, it takes both sides. So we implement that ourselves. And in fact, some of our strongest employees started off as back office assistants and now they're managing teams. I I just think it's really, really important that cross training take place. I think you need to see what goes into every role if you can. And I'm not saying, you know, months at a time in each division, but I do think that needs to take place initially when people are hired. I think that would make a huge difference. And I think it would make a difference in educating people on their specific role. How does it affect other people in the organization? And how do other people affect their role? I also think it's really important for people to feel like they're actually contributing to something and that they see there's room for them to grow and evolve. So it's really up to our industry to provide those kinds of opportunities. you know. And in many cases, that's going to mean changing the way we think and the way we currently operate. I know I myself, I've had to adapt in many ways and I'm still doing so in order to expand and and for us to be the premier consulting firm in our industry. I think it's, you know, it's a continuous process because I've mentioned this. In fact, I mentioned it to Rob one time. You mentioned Rob. I did a podcast with him and I said, listen, in this industry, you're either growing or you're going. And, and that's where we are today. So, We've just we've got to be able to provide the opportunities in a way that makes sense. And I think we need to look more at a holistic approach where there's this cross training involved and hands on applications involved, because I think people need to see it and do it in order for it to really connect and sink in.
1: Is there anything else that you want to share before we end today's conversation? You know, I would just,
0: I think I would just reiterate out of all of this, especially since you asked me to be on this, and I'm very grateful and appreciative of this opportunity. I would say the loudest message that I want to communicate is work with your vendors. Really, it's really important. I think people take for granted these integration um, relationships and they really are critical for more than one reason, not just the day to day inner workings of closing a file. I mean, long term, these relationships have a strong impact on our industry and on any organization. And I, I think the other thing is just really, you know, ed- make sure you're educated on what you're doing when it comes to security and the levels of protection
1: that you're providing and that you're being asked to provide. Great. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate your time and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. I appreciate you very much and I look forward to the next one. Thanks again to Stephanie for joining me today. If you'd like to learn more about Streamline Consulting, you can head over to their website at streamline.rocks. Title Talks is produced by PropLogics and myself. Original music is by Cole Sando, and original graphics are by Jordan Norris. Until next time, happy closings.